Well, why don't we get back into Matthew's gospel? Um, as Matthew 5 through 7 uh, focused on the teaching of Christ to demonstrate his authority concerning the word of God, chapter 8 and 9 concentrate on his authority over the created order. Uh, and so chapter 8 and 9 are wonderful. I'm excited to get into it. And uh, it's great. In these chapters, we're uh, going to witness much of the humanity of Christ, especially in his compassion but, uh, toward the afflicted, but also the, you know, people say, well, if the, the deity of Christ can only be drawn out of the gospel of John. It's not true. Uh, the deity of Christ just comes out of Matthew uh, chapter 8 and 9 strongly. It doesn't have to say it, it just demonstrates it. And uh, talk is cheap, right? Okay, we want action. And uh, chapter 8 and 9 is all about action. And so Jesus will demonstrate his deity in so many different ways in his infinite knowledge, uh, his, as the one who can approve and disapprove and in regard to approving faith, disapproving of unbelief, his divine authority to command and to forgive, and his limitless power over his creation, especially in regard to that which corrupts it. So this morning we're going to cover uh, two uh, familiar events. We're going to talk about the healing of the leper and the healing of the centurion's servant. The healing of the leper is probably my favorite uh, story in all of the scriptures. It's dear to my heart. I love it and i um, eager to, to teach it. Now I'm looking up and I'm seeing people sitting where they don't usually sit. Mike and Margaret, you've, it's just making me crazy. Oh, you're in their spot. I see what happened. <laughs> I'm teasing. Please sit there and change things up. Please, please stand as we read God's word together. All right, verses 1 through 13. Please listen carefully. When he, that's Jesus, had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, a leper came and worshiped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Then Jesus put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go your way and show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. The centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Well, Lord, we, we thank you for the testimony of your word. And Lord, as always, it, it, it's, it's imperative that we get it right. And this, these chapters are not about us getting anything from you. The miracles of Christ, 
the signs, the wonders. Lord, you intend for these things to draw us to Christ, that we would trust him. So I pray that as we look at this, Lord, that in our hearts we would make much of Christ, who is Lord of all. And so increase our faith, Lord, which is the intent of all this. Lord, thank you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, please be seated. All right, go ahead and return. Let's look at verse 1 and 2. Look closer at our story. It says, when he had come down from the mountain, great multitudes followed him. And behold, or look, a leper came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So others have now joined the crowd that, you know, listened to Jesus' Sermon on the Mountain. Together they've formed this great multitude as Jesus now makes his way back to Capernaum, which lied on the northwestern shore of the Sea of Galilee. We don't know how large the multitude is, but as the scriptures often describe it as a throng, uh, people were just flocking to him. Uh, Earlier in Matthew, it tells us that people were being drawn from all the different regions around Israel, uh, from the north and especially from the east. Uh, They're just gathering around him. Word has gotten out very quickly uh, that there's this man who the Jews were entertaining ideas of Messiah, others were entertaining ideas of prophet, and others didn't care who he was. They just knew that he could heal them. And so for whatever motive, people are being drawn to Jesus and they're following him. So now there's this great multitude. But before they made it to Capernaum, their, their progress was interrupted by this desperate man who had been living in isolation outside the city. According to the law of Moses, this man should not have been approaching the crowd. Now, whether or not there's a strict violation of the law of God, I'm I'm not really sure of that, but he's not really supposed to be approaching people. Okay, he should have been warning everyone to keep their distance because he was unclean from a disease called leprosy, and we don't actually know a ton about uh, ancient leprosy. What is called leprosy today is Hansen's disease. Uh, The leprosy of the Bible, I think, was best described by Moses as resembling a decomposing body where the flesh is rotting off the person while they live. That's how Moses described it. Whatever it was, it was contagious, it was dangerous, it was devastating both to the leper, to the leper's family, and to friends, to all of society. And the law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 13, verses 45 and 46 required that every leper live a quarantined, isolated life outside of their city. Their clothing had to be torn, their head had to be bare, and their mouths had to be covered. And whenever they saw people, they were required to shout to them, unclean, unclean. A leper was to be recognized by their isolation, by their appearance, and by their verbal warning. I'm over here, stay away, I'm unclean. And sadly, the very means by which the law protected the greater population from the disease was the same means by which these poor people were placed in a life of isolation, a life of of, uh, solitary confinement. Quarantine, though sad, was for the greater good. Now, according to the law, the leper was not to be treated as a sinner. They were ceremonially unclean, but by virtue of that, they were not sinful. It was just due to the disease that they were religiously, they were socially unclean. Their condition was viewed as something that would defile all that was holy to God, his 
temple, the place of worship, the worshipers and those who ministered there in the temple. So just a terrible disease that cut a person off from everything. They were a living, breathing, walking, decaying, lonely person. And before he was excluded from the community because of the disease, a process uh, under the examination of the priests would unfold. And mind you, going before a priest because you were suspect that you had leprosy must have been a very anxious thing. According to the law, a person who had certain symptoms on their flesh, they were required to show themselves to a priest. And depending on how the condition looked, whether or not it was spreading over the flesh or it was growing deeper into the tissue, the priest could immediately pronounce the person unclean or he could give it a couple weeks of observing it to see if it would heal or if it wouldn't. And then if it was spreading, he had to diagnose it as leprosy, as unclean. So imagine the stress of being under that kind of examination, especially if you knew that your condition was getting worse. You can imagine that between visits, your nights would be sleepless and your days would just be filled with anxiety because the priest could pronounce you unclean and then you would be removed from your home, you'd be separated from your family, you would be made an outcast, even though you had done nothing wrong, you had just gotten sick. But for everyone's safety, you were removed from society to suffer alone. But then in our story, this leper who was driven by faith and of course desperation, he approached Jesus. And, and if he wasn't shouting unclean, unclean, the people would have recognized him because of his head being uncovered, because of his, his torn clothing, his mouth was covered, and the disease was probably apparent on his scalp. And the moment the crowd recognized the leper, what do you think they did? They gave him a wide berth. Yeah. And so imagine the scene. The, the crowd would have backed away and around, leaving Jesus alone with the leper, who was now bowing face down to the ground before Christ. And you would perhaps hear the disciples saying to Jesus, Lord, no, please back away. He's unclean. Don't do this. Don't do this. But Jesus stood his ground, not moving a muscle. And I could imagine that after every attempt failed to get Jesus to back away, because you know Peter was involved in this because he's always protecting Jesus. The crowd finally fell silent, waiting for Jesus to do what he would do. And then out of the silence, this poor man speaks, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And there's a lot said in that statement. You, know, you have the ability to not only remove the scourge from my body, but you alone have the ability to restore me to my life again, to my family, my friends, and to corporate worship. All is possible if you are willing. Now, interesting, in here, there's an implication of some doubt. The affirmation of the leper doesn't doubt the power of Christ, but it does kind of hold into question the will of Christ. The two are very different. The former is confident in Christ's power to heal. The latter wonders if Christ is motivated by pity to do what he is able. A.B. Bruce says, men more easily believe in miraculous power than in miraculous love. I think that's, that's good insight. You know, a great deal of us know that God can do anything. We don't doubt that. But we do doubt if he cares enough to affect our circumstances. And so some people never explore in prayer to see. But this leper has come to find out. He's come to find out. Lord, my illness is subject to your holy will by which I can be made clean. Then Jesus 
put out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. You know, as Jesus stood there, it was enough for the people to be disturbed. But as he reached his hand out, there must have been audible sounds coming from the crowd, jaws to the ground, eyes wide open, because nobody touches a leopard, a leper, not a leopard. As Jesus is seen, it must have been like slow motion. No! (laughs) Doing the unthinkable. He's risking not only his, his own religious purity, he's putting his health on the line and endangering every relationship that he has. But he couldn't help himself when he... He saw the plight of this man in his desperation, but also in his belief. Mark tells us in his account that Jesus was moved with compassion for the man. The Greek word for compassion means to have a visceral reaction. The word is splugnizomai. It doesn't sound like a good visceral reaction. It's a gut-wrenching response that's driven by pity. So Jesus' stomach was in knots over this man's condition and it compelled him first to touch him. First to touch him. Why did he touch him? It wasn't necessary, at least as the next story indicates. Jesus doesn't have to even be in the same vicinity to heal someone. Distance means nothing to the grasp of his power and authority. Everything is tangible to him. I imagine that when Jesus touched the man as his face was to the ground, that it actually startled him, that he flinched. I mean, he believed that Jesus could heal him, but it never crossed his mind that Jesus would dare to touch him, for he was untouchable. So why touch him? Now, we don't know how long this man has been a leper in isolation, but it's very possible that it's been years. And if he's been in isolation from his family for years, it's very possible that that he hasn't been touched by another person since he went into quarantine. Human touch had become something foreign to him, a memory And even though he certainly longed for human touch, he had given up on it. I mean, imagine if he had a wife and small children who were off limits to his embrace, only seeing them from a distance, but loving them too much to bring them to himself, longing for touch, but resigning it to something of the past. And though Jesus' touch would have startled him, he certainly would have welcomed it. That simple touch, I believe, must have restored so much of his humanity just in that instant. And I believe that Jesus understood more than just the man's physical plight. He was ministering to more than just the man's medical condition. And while human touch was not more important to this man than being healed, he must have felt Jesus' touch more deeply than he had ever experienced human touch before. And we could only imagine what it meant for this man to take his family in his arms again. Talk about a reunion. And after touching him, or maybe even in the process of touching him, Jesus said, I am willing, be cleansed. And without delay, the man was healed. His leprosy was gone, and his misery and the nightmare was over, just over. But there's actually more to the story. Introducing this man back into society is not as simple as it may seem. It requires eight days. Eight days, what a miserable eight days that would be, yeah? And Jesus said to him, see that you tell no one, but go your way, show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded as a testimony to them, to them. So after the man was cleansed, Jesus has some instructions for him. He can't just get up and go home, okay, as much as he would like to. First, 
the man was told not to broadcast how he was healed, at least to the public. And Jesus is trying to avoid the unwanted attention of the, the, the religious leaders of Israel, and the healing of a leper would cause no small stir among them. Okay, and there's historical reasons for this. That kind of news would spread quickly. It would draw more crowds, which would stir the anger and jealousy of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which only make it more difficult for Jesus to do what he wanted to do, and that was to minister to the common people. So Jesus told the man not to go public with his healing. What do you think he did? What do you think you would do? Well, Matthew doesn't say it, but in Luke's account of this, um, he did a fine job of not quite following orders, and uh, he shouted it out uh, in his excitement. can hardly blame him. But Jesus also told the man to show himself to the priest and to follow the ordinance of the law concerning lepers who have been cleansed. According to Leviticus chapter 14, verse 2, a priest had to be called for, and then he would have to come outside the city to examine the one who had presumably been healed or cleansed of leprosy. And if the leprosy was indeed gone, a series of elaborate offerings and rituals, unlike any other ritual in the Old Testament, would be performed both at the beginning and at the end of the eight-day period in order to ritually cleanse the man that he might be brought back in to temple worship. The former leper would have to then shave all the hair on their body, even their eyebrows, bathe in water, wash, and wash their clothes, and then finally they could join the community. I'll tell you, after all that, shaved eyebrows aren't that bad, okay? Aren't that bad. And then verse 4 ends with Jesus saying that going to the priest, singular, I'm going to start dancing here in a minute, going to the priest, singular, who hooted just then about me singing or, or dancing, yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't be pretty. But going to a priest would then be a testimony to all of them, all of the priesthood. Something important is going to happen. You know, it's interesting that the only Israelite, the only Jew the only Israelite in scripture that was ever healed of leprosy occurred 1,400 years earlier after Miriam um, challenged God's anointed Moses and then God struck her with leprosy. She endured the disease for only seven days before God healed her. It's the only one. Naaman is, uh, was cured of leprosy, but he was a Gentile from Assyria. And for the man in our story, to present himself to a priest after being healed of leprosy would have sparked the interest of all because no priest, no prophet of God had ever healed someone of leprosy before. This was the first. The priest would want to know how and by whom this man was healed. And such an inquiry, of course, would lead them to the most controversial man in Israel, who was Jesus. The very man they had branded as a heretic and being demon-possessed, and the illegitimate child of a poor woman from Nazareth. This in itself would raise a stink in Israel. Another interesting fact is that only one other priest had ever performed what is required in the law regarding lepers. Now on a regular basis, the average priest performed almost everything prescribed in the law of Moses, but not this one, not this one. Every priest had certainly trained for it in preparation for the ministry, but no one had ever witnessed or performed a real one for themselves, except 1,400 years earlier. You know what this means? 
it's time to dust off Leviticus 14 and do what no priest had ever thought that he'd be called to do. I believe the testimony to the priests was that the Messiah had come to the house of Israel and they had better pay attention. They'd better be weary of what they say about him and more importantly, they must consider what it is they believe. Okay? This miracle should have brought every priest out of the temple that they might present themselves to Christ for every ritual, every sacrifice pointed to him and anticipated his coming. These men, along with the scribes, should have been the first of all of Israel to recognize and welcome Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah who was promised in the scriptures. This indeed would be a testimony to all of the leadership, but it would be something that would be over the top for them. He didn't want the leper going to the public with this news. He wanted to be verified by the priest. And how much more powerful the witness if the testimony went before them. A verified healing of a leper. It's a great story. I think it's one of the most important miracles in the Gospels because of the testimony it was to the leadership, but also that the Son of God had come to minister to everyone, and if they didn't find him, he would go find them. What a difference between Jesus and the so-called healers of today. Jesus went seeking them out. If they didn't find him, he would go find them, and he would do the unthinkable and touch the untouchable. You know, you've heard it said that firemen are the men who run into burning buildings while everyone else is running out. Well, Jesus was like that in this way, uh, in this culture. As everyone else withdrew from lepers, you saw Jesus drawing near. This would not be the last leper that he healed. So imagine the priests in the temple. Wait, another one? Another one? What's going on? Who's out there? Who's doing this? And so many in this culture, not just lepers, as we'll see through the Gospels, are outcasts and untouchables, but it's to them that Jesus goes. And it's because of that he gets the most criticism from the Pharisees. Criticism isn't always a bad thing. Amen? It's good. He was driven by compassion for the hurting and the desperate. We should join him today in this effort. Let's move on in our story. Another great historical event. Now, when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. Now, real quick, Luke also records uh, this story for us, but he, he records the longer version of the two. Uh, Matthew's is certainly abbreviated. He just cuts right to the chase. But there's some differences between the stories that uh, are bothersome to some. Okay? Uh, Matthew records that the centurion himself comes to Jesus. But in Luke's account, some elders of the city came to Jesus in the centu- on the centurion's behalf. Is this a problem? Well, I don't believe so especially since the exact same information is conveyed in both stories regarding the servant. Only in Luke's account, the details are conveyed by way of representation, who came in the centurion's stead. Uh, This kind of communication is actually used all the time by us, and we really think nothing of it. Let me give you an example of that. John says this. He says, Pilate took Jesus and scourged him. Hold the phone. Pilate stepped down from the judgment seat and took up the scourge, and whipped Jesus himself, no one in their right mind believes that he did that, okay? But instead, he had soldiers do it on his behalf, under his command, right? Well, that's true, and no one accuses John of false reporting by saying it this way. It's just a way of speaking, 
And I believe the same consideration should be made for the different way that Matthew and Luke report the events. There is in there a way of speaking. If, uh, if that troubles you still, let's chat after service or uh, around a steak. That would be far better. Give us longer to talk about the subject. Let's move on. A centurion was a soldier, of course, a commanding officer of about 100 Roman soldiers. Uh, he was stationed in Capernaum to keep the peace, to uh, advance the interests of Rome, and always to make sure that the people were paying their taxes. Okay? Uh, he would have been under the, uh, the command of Herod Antipas. Now, the interesting thing about this particular centurion that we learned from Luke is that he was a sympathizer to the nation of Israel. Uh, Luke tells us that the Jews, uh, they were saying that this centurion loves our nation and he's built a synagogue for the Jews of Capernaum. Okay? And they say he's a good man and therefore he's, he's actually worthy of his request of Jesus. Uh, that's another issue altogether, but that's what they said. And then as we read uh, the story about this man, uh, we find that his humility is impressive. Uh, for Romans, especially those uh, with military or political power, they did not plead with Jews for anything, and they certainly never called one of them Lord, which could also be risky for that Roman. Also, this man was not pleading for the life of his spouse or one of his own children. He's pleading on behalf of a slave, someone that is normally thought of as expendable. Okay? But this wasn't just any slave. The Greek term here is not the typical word for slave, which is doulos. Okay? Uh, this is the word pais, which is the term used for a child or a teenage slave. This was a boy, a boy. William Hendrickson, the great New Testament scholar, points out in this that there's a phrase of endearment. He literally says, Lord, my boy is lying at home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented. This boy was not viewed by this man as a slave, but as a child in his home who was dear to his heart. And this is what's so interesting about this. This boy was indeed the legal property of this man, but this man's heart belonged to that boy. It's a very sweet story, okay? And so he's come to Jesus because the thought of losing this child has brought this man of war to his knees. He was a good man. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. And the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. Not only is this man extremely humble, he's got some very clean theology. He does. There's a lot of great stuff in here. First, in verse 8, he says to Jesus, just utter the word, just utter the word, and my servant will be healed. Apparently, this centurion had both heard Jesus teach and witnessed him healing people in his earlier ministry from Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, all of which were performed in that general vicinity, which was in part under the authority of this man. The centurion didn't just come out of the blue and call Jesus Lord and have confidence in his power. There, there's some history here that Matthew doesn't make us aware of. But this centurion must have had a lot more knowledge about Jesus than we know. And the way that he gives 
priority and attention to the word of Christ is extremely significant to our theology. For example, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2, it says that it was through Christ that God made the world. But then in verse 3, it says that Jesus upholds all of his creation by his powerful word. Well, that's kind of intense. The world was brought into existence by his word, and it's kept in existence by his word. That's some powerful word. Amen? Colossians 1, verse 15 through 16 says that Jesus created everything that is visible and invisible, and it was created by him and for him. He existed before all things, and it's by him that all things maintain their existence. And all of it happened according to his word. I think it's always interesting that the very word that we use to describe the physical universe actually means uh, a single spoken sentence. Uni means one, and verse refers to a sentence. We live in a single spoken sentence. The, the word of God brought everything into existence out from nothing through Christ Jesus. And if Jesus can speak the world into existence, he can definitely speak and heal any disease. And as our story reveals, Jesus can do it without even being present. He doesn't have to be there. Everything is within the reach of his powerful word. There's no distance that can diminish his authority. Now, this centurion may not have had all of our theology regarding the word of Christ, but he's not far from it. For someone to just say, Lord, say the word, and he says, say a word, whatever word that might be, and my servant will be healed. He says, I'm not worthy to have you in my home. That's, that's an honor that is well above my rank. But if you'll just give the word, all will be well. Another significant thing regarding this man's theology is his understanding of real authority. He knows enough about Jesus to know that he's under authority. Presumably the authority of God is Father. Just like the centurion is under the authority of both Herod and the commander of the Roman legion stationed in Israel. And he also knows that with great authority comes great power. And then to illustrate his understanding, he compares his own authority to command his servants and soldiers to Jesus' authority, interestingly, to command illness. That takes authority to a whole new level, whole new level. And just as the centurion's servants and slaves obey his every word, the sickness tormenting his boy will obey Jesus' word. And of course, obedience is a figure of speech, but it will go at a word from Christ. Just say the word, Lord, and my boy will be healed. No sickness can resist your authority. It's no surprise that this man understands how authority works in a military context or in the context of slavery. I think most people understand how authority works among people and even with animals. But this man understood authority way beyond that. I mean, just think about that. That everything yields, even illness, to the word to the authority of a man. You know, earlier we witnessed Jesus' authority in teaching as he, you know, he corrected rabbinical tradition and he gave the final authority, or final interpretation rather, on God's law. And remember the people, it says they marveled because Jesus spoke as one having authority. And what the, the statement means is he had authority in himself, authority in himself. Later we're gonna see Jesus exercises authority over demons, the weather over sin and even life itself. 
It's not just an issue of raw power that Jesus does what he does. It involves power, but it's more of an issue of his right to perform his holy will within his own creation. That's his domain. It's his jurisdiction. He's holding it all uh, in place. He's keeping it in existence. And he can add or toss out anything he pleases just according to his will by his authority. When we go through the scriptures, we find that Jesus has the authority to even delegate his authority. We see it in Matthew 10 when he delegates authority to the apostles to have that, to hold it over demons, illness, and disease. The Pharisees understood this too. In Matthew 21, they came to Jesus and said, by what authority do you do these things and who gave it to you? Who gave it to you? And in Matthew 28, 18, Jesus says, all authority has been given that is delegated to me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. I wish that people obeyed the authority of Christ as well as disease does, making disciples. Interesting. So just as the people had perceived that Jesus had authority in himself to teach, Matthew 7, 29, this centurion perceived that Jesus had authority over sickness. So he pleads with him to wield that authority over his servant. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, assuredly I say to you, I have, found, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. So this is interesting because the centurion is a Gentile and he turns away from the Gentile and he speaks to the Jews, to those who are in Israel. There's a rebuke there. There's a rebuke. It should have been in Israel that Jesus discovered such great faith. Instead, he discovered it in a Gentile who's not a part of Israel. He's just a foreigner. He should have found faith in God's covenant community among his own kinsmen. Now, Jesus is going to be impressed with one other person's faith. And again, it's not an Israelite. It's a pagan woman from Phoenicia, not a Jew. The rebuke from Jesus carries into the next two verses. He says, and I say to you that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those from east and from west refer to the Gentiles who will believe on Christ like the centurion. The sons of the kingdom refer to the Israelites the actual ancestors of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are the Jews, many of which will reject Christ, the majority of which will reject Christ. Those from the east and west have come to the nation of Israel as guests, as non-citizens. But through faith, through faith, these believing Gentiles will inherit the kingdom that was promised to faithful Israel. They will sit down with the patriarchs and they will participate in the kingdom of heaven. But those native born, those to whom the kingdom was meant for, the Jews who do not believe will be cast out of the kingdom into outer darkness, Jesus says, where they will weep and they will grind their teeth. You know, of all people in the world, the Jew is the one that should have been entering the kingdom through faith, for it was to them that God revealed himself. It was them that he he delivered out of Egypt. He made his covenant with them. He, He gave them an identity. He made them a nation. He gave them his law, and he delivered his word to them. They had every advantage. Even Paul says that in Romans, in two different sections of the book. 
He asks the question, what advantage then is the Jew or does the Jew have? He says, well, much in every way. To them was committed and he just goes on this with this list of things that were given to them, opportunities, privileges, and yet they were the most unbelieving for which Jesus says they will, they will earn their exclusion. But the pagan who was left in spiritual darkness, they were at every disadvantage. Everything was working against them. These, these are gonna sit at the table simply because they trusted in Christ and the irony is he's the Jewish Messiah. They will join the patriarchs as resident aliens. I hope you're uncomfortable with that because that's us, okay? We're gonna be adopted. We'll become resident aliens with all the rights of a citizen. Now, as far as I can tell, the, the greatest reason for the Jews' unbelief was, and even is to this day, the influence of rabbinical tradition and teaching. Because of it, the nation of Israel was not prepared for Jesus' coming. But as Paul says in Acts 17, the Gentiles were groping about in the dark, and then they seen his light, and they believed unto salvation. Very interesting here, Jesus is becoming more and more specific uh, about the language he uses in regard to judgment and uh, the kingdom of heaven and this allusion to outer darkness and the weeping and gnashing of teeth. Of course, we're talking about heaven, we're talking about hell. And the irony in here is that heaven was, uh, the kingdom was made for the Jew. And according to the Jew, hell was made for the Gentile. But it's going to be the other way around. Uh, not every Jew will be cast into outer darkness. And of course, not every Gentile is going to be in the kingdom of heaven. It is reserved only, heaven is reserved only for the believer. And hell is reserved for those who reject Christ. Very interesting story. Christ's authority, power, his compassion, his goodness. All an example to us. They said the story is not, well, I'll, I'll go on. Let's continue. Then Jesus said to the centurion, so he turns back to the Gentiles, he says, go your way, and as you have believed, so let it be done for you. And his servant was healed that same hour. Well, how did Matthew know that? Well, according to Luke, um, other people had, of course, written an account, uh, but Luke had done all kinds of research into uh, all of the details that had written before this. And he says that through all of my research, I have come to a complete account of all the details. And so you can just imagine uh, at the time that Paul was incarcerated in Philippi, Luke had all this time to wander around and investigate and uh, have meetings with people. And I'll bet that Matthew in his uh, investigation, it's not like you know, Capernaum was this huge metropolis and tracking down the centurion was a problem. Uh, it, was, it wasn't a big town. And, and Centralia would have been a massive town to Matthew. Uh, but to track the centuria down and say, hey, give us your testimony. Tell us, how did it go down? And then to the leper, tell us your story. How did it go down? I wish they would have recorded his assimilation with his family, with his friends. But remember, as we began, all of this is to draw attention to Jesus and make much of him. Uh, it's, it's really easy when we read about the miracles to make... Uh, the story about us and what we can get from God as we see these people doing that. But that's not what's happening here. This is about Jesus. It's about getting us to God. Jesus performed miracles to verify his identity as the Messiah. Okay, not to inspire faith for more miracles, but to inspire faith in him. Uh, saving people from 
their physical illness, their, their sufferings, wasn't his, his purpose for coming. He came to save people from the consequences of their sin. I think, per, obviously, miracles certainly showed God's compassion for our plight, but the purpose of all this is to make Jesus the object of our faith. So let's not make it about us. This is meant to draw people's attention to Christ that we might make much of him. Amen? This is all will come out more as, we, as the story unfolds. Well, why don't you stand up and uh, we'll pray. I'll get you out of here. Father, we love you. Lord, thank you for sending your son into the world to walk among us. As John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And, um, and Lord, he didn't come to make it about us. We would love for it to all be about us. But Lord, it's for us to recognize who he is, to go to him in faith and trust him. And Lord, I pray that as we continue to look at his teaching and his miracles, that Lord, as some wander in here and they, they don't really know what this whole thing is all about, I pray that they would see Christ in all of his majesty and that they would trust in him. He is their creator. He is the savior. And Lord, they would embrace him that way. And Lord, for those of us that are struggling with something, whether it be illness or loss, Lord, I pray, as we've said, that the story would make much of you and they would trust you more. They would embrace you in a deeper way and they would walk in peace because of your goodness, because of your sovereignty. So Lord, use the stories as you may. I also pray, Lord, that that the example of Christ would be heavy upon our hearts, that like him, that we would be motivated to go to the outcast that we would do the unthinkable, that we would touch the untouchable. And Lord, that we could give that same light to a world that is desperate for you. So Lord, help us, we pray. Grant us your grace. We love you. In Jesus' name.